0: the united methodist people podcast episode number eight with michigan area bishop david allen bard hello this is bishop julius Trimble from the indiana area and you are connecting with the united methodist people podcast with reverend dr brad miller doing all the good we can The hurts
1: of the world cannot wait for us to kind of figure out what we're going to do as a denomination for us to minister to those needs of the world. God calls us in Jesus Christ to minister to the needs of the world right now, regardless of some of the denominational uncertainty. And when I see people doing that, that to me is is one sign of hope.
2: Welcome to the United Methodist People Podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to accomplishing the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The United Methodist People podcast helps clergy and church leaders connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from the people making a difference in the United Methodist Church through conversation and commentary. And now, here's Brad. Hello my good friend and welcome to the United Methodist
0: People podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller. So glad you joined me today on this special episode as we talk to the bishops of the United Methodist Church. A series of episodes we're doing on the United Methodist podcast where we speak to United Methodist bishops about some of the matters that really matter in our church these days. Our guest today is Bishop David Allen Bard of the Michigan area of the United Methodist Church, and uh, I'm uh, posing a question to all of our bishops over the course of the next few months, between now, I'm I'm recording this in mid-July of 2018, and through February of 2019, when we have our our call General Conference, which will be dealing with significant matters in the church. And I'm asking our our bishops uh, two uh, very pertinent questions that I think uh, need to be addressed. And I'll get into those questions here in just a minute. But I want you to know that what the United Methodist People podcast is all about is the belief that I have that strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church is absolutely vital if we are to be effective in accomplishing our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We need strong local churches, we need strong districts and annual conferences, and of course our general church needs to be strong. And however things shake out after 2019, we still need to have a primacy of grace in what we are about in the United Methodist Church and to strengthen our connection and our unity working, working together in order to accomplish our mission. That's why we exist. I am a local church pastor. I've been an elder in the Indiana Conference for 35 years or so and served uh, many churches. I've also been involved with uh, radio most of uh, much of that uh, time as well as podcasting since 2012 and I believe in this medium as a way to spread the good news about what's going on in in the United Methodist Church and also for us to deal with. Uh, diligently with the with the matters at hand. So this podcast is all about strengthening the connection through conversation and commentary. So we have conversations with people who are leaders in our church and uh, theologians and particularly bishops. Right now is what what we are doing. And so that's my role and that's my calling and and hope that you'll be supportive of this. We'll be here every week to share some uh, some good news with you about what is happening in the United Methodist Church. And to deal directly in conversation and commentary with what is happening in our church these days, I want to encourage you that if you uh, would like to get more information about what we, what, uh, what you and I are up to here on the United Methodist People Podcast, you can head over to uh, to the website at unitedmethodistpodcast.com. dot com. There, you can learn a little bit more about some of the past episodes of United Methodist People Podcast, and also get connected to us. You can sign up for our newsletter, our update uh, page, and there you will also get a, a free gift, which is a multimedia presentation called The Methodist Way, which I think you'll be hi- find helpful in, in your ministry. Of course, this podcast is targeted towards United Methodist clergy and, and lay people and to the church. But please, please spread the good news with other folks that you may know who you think this might be helpful to. One of the ways that you can do that is by looking up our podcast on iTunes, and there you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating, five stars, if you think we deserve it, and then uh, also write a review uh, for the podcast there on iTunes. You can find us on iTunes and some Stitcher, some other places like that, as well as on our website, unitedmethodistpodcast.com, and we look forward to being here every week and to being helpful to building and strengthening the connection. Well, I mentioned that there's two vital questions that I'm asking all the bishops that I can uh, to respond to. And those two questions are are these. How are we doing? How is the church responding? How effective is the church in actually accomplishing our stated mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world? I just want to know how our bishops feel like we are doing in this matter. And the second question is the pertinent one, especially in relationship to what is happening in February 2019. And that is, I just want to get the bishop's view, each individual bishop's view of the way forward. What they feel like is the matters in the church as we face the General Conference of 2019. What are the implications of the various opportunities, the various scenarios that have been presented about how the church may look after after February 2019. And just what they think is going to happen. And so I think these are matters that we need to deal with in the church and to have a good conversation and good commentary. And uh, one of the places we can do that is through our conversations with our bishops. And today we are just uh, pleased to have Bishop David Allen Bard of the Michigan area, who was with us, to share some of his thoughts and his feelings. And we had just a great conversation with Bishop Bard. And I think you're really going to get a lot out of this. He talks about Growing up in his faith, his walk in faith, and the local church that he was connected up to, and, and his some of his struggles and his journey in faith in his teenage and his college years, and how he really got involved with the ethics of the church, and uh, and learned and got a doctorate in ethics from Perkins Theological Seminary, and then served churches in many capacities in the state of Minnesota, and then later on was elected to the episcopacy and served is served in michigan for a few years now he has some interesting takes on the state of the church in michigan and some of the things that they've done there and also some interesting takes on how we can come up with good cogent arguments and develop uh own sensibilities about our take our personal takes on the way forward and how we need to have uh, arguments and opinions that are carefully thought out you're going to hear him unpack that as well as his just devotion to Christ and to the church. And I love to hear that. I love to hear that. And and how the way we do stuff makes a big difference as well. Today, our special guest on the United Methodist People podcast is Bishop David Allen Bard of the Michigan area of the United Methodist Church. So let's get into that interview right now. Welcome back to the United Methodist People podcast with Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. It's my privilege on this edition of the United Methodist People podcast where our mission is strengthening the connection through conversation and commentary to have a great conversation with Bishop David Allen Bard of the Michigan area of the United Methodist Church. Bishop Bard served for many years as as the pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Duluth, Minnesota. And he was elected into the Episcopacy on July 13, 2016, and assigned to the Michigan area. And he has served in many capacities in our United Methodist Church for more than 30 years of service. And we are glad to have him with us today on the United Methodist People podcast. Bishop, welcome to United Methodist People. Well,
1: thank you, Brad. It's a pleasure to
0: be with you. Wonderful. We are in a series of podcast episodes where we're talking to... Leaders in the United Methodist Church and particularly our bishops, and just exploring some of the some of their implications and the issues regarding our church during this time and but really, I always like to start my conversations Bishop with just kind of something much more foundational. I would really like to hear and and I'm sure our friends who are listening would like to hear a little bit about your faith journey how you came to know Christ in the first place, and a little bit about your journey that ended up where you're at now, the, as the bishop of the of the Michigan area. Sure, I'd be glad to glad to share that with you,
1: Brad. That uh, that I am the bishop of the Michigan area. Uh, there's there's probably not a lot in my early religious history that would have uh, lent itself to this direction. I grew up in a modestly churched home. My father was essentially a non-practicing um, person. He had uh, grown up Catholic, but I can probably count the times on a single hand that uh, he was in church. So it, w- it was my mother who brought my uh, sister and brother and I to church. Um, and my mom got her driver's license the year my wife and I got married. So we walked um, and we went to the nearest uh, Protestant church. And in which case, for me, it was a, it was a United Methodist church. My mom had actually been um, confirmed in an EUB church. Uh, her family's background was Lutheran, but they were pretty marginal in terms of their church involvement. Anyway, so you, you get a picture of a of a family that attended church but probably wouldn't have been considered the strongest family in the life of that congregation, and that was in Duluth, Minnesota. That's uh, the community in which I grew up. I later went back to that same community, different church, and and served, so I've got a lot of uh, roots in, in Duluth anyway so so as a from a modestly church family, when I was in the eighth grade in in that church, I had a, a Sunday school teacher whose conversations about God's love in Jesus Christ were matched by her own love and and care and it was really at during that year that I made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior it was that Point at which um, I said yes to to God's grace, which I think had been at work in my life in in other ways from from my earliest years, but that was the moment at which uh, um, I confirmed the faith that uh, was uh,
0: was that a private moment or was that some sort of a public um, event, like Sunday school class or a camp or something like this?
1: It, it was really for me a private moment, but there were a lot of moments that that led up to that. Uh, you know, the the Sunday school teacher had been talking about uh, the good news of God's love in Jesus through, throughout that that year. Um, I became uh, much more uh, involved in in reading. She gave me a couple of books. Um, I was reading my reading the Bible, and uh, was listening to some Billy Graham crusades on television and those kinds of things. And uh, at one moment, I just said, said yes. And that, that particular moment was a private moment, but there were public moments that had been a part of that. That was really the place at which I began to take uh, my faith uh, very seriously, uh, tried to be, pay much more attention to how God was at, at work in my life, uh, went through uh, a period of time where I was involved in uh, a, a parachurch church, um, kind of a, a offshoot of uh, what was uh, once known as the Jesus movement. I was a little young for for some of that. I was kind of on the younger end, but uh, but there was a group of uh, of Christians in the Duluth area that had founded this kind of young people's church, um, and so I became involved in that for for a period of a couple of years along with
0: staying connected with uh, my United Methodist Church. Sounds like you had some really individuals who were influential on you, and then you had to get a bit more organized and passionate about the church then. And how that did that eventually evolve, uh, Bishop, to you getting involved, to deciding, deciding to heed the call of ministry and to end up being an ordained pastor in the United Methodist Church and eventually... To becoming a bishop,
1: sometime in those those early years, eighth ninth grade, I had some sense that maybe ordained ministry was was a direction. As I mentioned, was involved in this uh, this Jesus People Church. Went a little bit further into high school and into my early college years. I, I drifted away a little bit. I always stayed connected with my United Methodist Church, but some of the intensity of those early years waned a bit. In some ways, I began to ask some some questions about. Um, aspects of, of, of my faith, never completely gave up on my faith, but also was wondering about how it fit with some other things I was learning and, and uh, picking up uh, both in school and in some of my other reading. And I ended up majoring in philosophy and psychology in, in college. And when I got done with college, uh, I, I entered seminary as much to put some of my faith back together as to answer a call to ordained ministry. Uh, my wife kind of kids me about that. She's, you know, When I was finishing college, we, we were dating at the time, um, and she said, you know, you said you wanted to go to seminary to an- answer some questions. She said, I'd never heard of that before. But, but thankfully, I was able to, to do that, and it was really during that first year of seminary that, that I felt that call again into ordained ministry. And part of it was a sense that I couldn't be the only person around who at times had struggles with, with my faith. I could share that journey helpfully with other people who at times maybe didn't just have a direct route from um, confirmation to to wherever in their faith, who, who'd maybe never gone through some of those struggles. But I could be, be a pastor to people both who struggled and, and maybe who didn't.
0: Your struggles and your questioning is the common human experience for almost anyone who is introspective at all. And if you were a philosophy major, then you are basically trained in critical thinking and to question things and and that came naturally. And so I would think that this has been helpful. To you and your ministry, because really everybody's questioning one way, one form or another. Why am I here? What's it all about? What's the meaning of my life, and so on? What is meaningful and what is meaningless? And it seems to me that would be helpful. Your own search, uh, your own search for identity and ministry and direction, has been helpful to others.
1: I I have, I I have. There's been a number of times when people who have been on the margins have had a conversation with me and I can kind of relate to some of what they're they've experienced and I don't shy away from the, their their struggles their their doubts um, I can be with them in that trusting that that God's spirit can work in the midst of that uh, because God's spirit certainly
0: worked in the midst of that in in my life And now that questioning eventually came at a time when you made a commitment through the United Methodist Church to go that route. Tell me a little bit more about how that came about and how you end up serving the church.
1: So I just had this sense, and, and I don't have a real dramatic call into ordained ministry story. It was really a dawning sense and perhaps a recapturing of a, of a sense of call that I'd experienced earlier that, that God could use my gifts and graces helpfully in the church. And the additional element of that to me is that there was this, this strong sense of that's what I ought to be doing. And and that just strengthened over over the time as I was uh, in my first uh, first few months of seminary. So I finished seminary, um, was uh, ordained a deacon. That was our process then, uh, ordained a deacon, became a probationary member of the Minnesota Conference. Uh, served my first appointment in a small town in the uh, northwest corner of Minnesota, uh, Roseville, Minnesota, 10 miles from the Canadian border. It was the kind of place that, uh, frankly, Um, A lot of the other clergy in the conference were very glad that they weren't appointed there because it was kind of an isolated place, long way from uh, the Twin Cities metropolitan area. Uh, But I was really
0: glad. uh, Bishop, was it was it a great opportunity as we were often told when we have our first appointments? Well, so, so I met with the district superintendent,
1: and, and having grown up in Duluth, which is in the northern part of Minnesota, um, I, he was the northwest district superintendent, and I said, you know, I really like northern Minnesota. It's what I'm familiar with. And uh, I, I'm guessing inside he must have been jumping up and down, because later I became the northwest district superintendent and knew what it was like when somebody said they were interested in coming north. Things come around, don't they? Yeah. They, they do come around. They do come around. And my wife and I by that time had uh, our, our first child was born uh, my last year's seminary. So we were, we were glad to have a place to, to call home. And at the same time, I also had this sense that my education wasn't, wasn't yet done. I had, I had thought about perhaps going on to uh, do doctoral work after, after seminary, but that I needed and wanted the experience in, in a parish before, before I did that or if I ever did that. And after three years in that uh, that appointment, I, I ended up moving to Dallas, Texas, where I pursued a PhD in Christian ethics, and uh, completed that. So I spent seven years in seven years in Dallas, and that was a great experience for me because while I was there, I also worked part time at, at a United Methodist Church in Dallas. Was allowed a, a, a longer in some ways a longer mentoring than I had previously experienced. It was a wonderful congregation, Ridgewood Park United Methodist Church in Dallas. Uh, they embraced my family and me. By that time my wife and I had two children. Uh, our third child was born in Dallas. They were they were very helpful encouraging me along the way. The, the senior pastor there encouraged me both as a, as a youth pastor and in doing my academic work and that was that was kind of a unique combination sometimes uh when you 're trying to do the academic work and also involved in in church life, uh, one or the other suffers and uh, my the senior pastor at that church, a guy named Fred Durham, was very supportive of both those endeavors
0: and i I really appreciated him Sounds like in a way you experience the church when it, when it 's at its best in terms of nurturing and caring and for encouraging your ministry we We really did we we really did experience the the church
1: at its best uh during that time, and when I completed my PhD, I kind of thought perhaps I would uh, go into teaching, and that that never happened. Uh, was appointed back in in Minnesota, um, you know. Now having served as a district superintendent and now a bishop, I kind of thinking, boy, that you know, if I had to deal with me. I can imagine some of the consternation I caused, because I, I think I called my district superintendent in March of the year. I was going to Southern Methodist University to say, I've got this uh, fellowship, and I'm going to leave my church. And I'm thinking now, you know, I really didn't give her a lot of time to find uh, the next pastor for that church, and I've always felt kind of badly about that. And then, you know, I finished my Ph.D. I'd always gone back to the my annual conference every year when we were in, when we lived in Dallas. I always went back and was at my sessions of annual conference in Minnesota. Uh, so stayed ma- maintained that connection, and so when I was completing my Ph.D., I said I'd really like to be considered for an appointment, and uh, they were very gracious. Uh, you know, I, could, I can imagine a little bit of the skepticism here, somebody who's not been in our conference for, for seven years and suddenly is coming back, but, but I was appointed to, uh, to a cooperative parish in, in northern Minnesota, uh, Minnesota's Iron Range, it was an experiment. Seven churches, two full-time pastors, a halftime pastor, uh, lay speakers. The the it was a way to provide ministry with congregations that uh, we in kind of we're in declining areas and.
0: It sounds like a far cry from what you experienced in Dallas, however.
1: Oh, it is. We so I went from this small town, uh, Roseville, Minnesota is about twenty-two hundred. We moved to Dallas, which is this huge area, you know, and very large churches. Uh, some of the United Methodist churches down there are are, are amazing, um, and then back to this very sm- much different, smaller community in uh, in northeastern Minnesota. So I've had a, a rich array of experiences in ministry, and every one of them, as I look back on them, I'm really grateful grateful to the people and grateful to god so i was in that parish uh for four years and i remember getting the call from uh, bishop john hopkins asking if i would consider having him appoint me as a district superintendent and i was relatively young i was in my late 30s at the time um you know hadn't been serving this parish a real long time but i've always been open to to wherever i have felt perhaps god's calling taking me and so i became a district superintendent and uh 1998, and had the northwest part of Minnesota, which is where my ministry
0: started. Uh, it included the church that uh, that I was first appointed to. So you knew the area and knew some of the blessings and some of the challenges in that area as well, and and knew that part of the world. And eventually, you ended up with a long pastorate at uh, First Church Duluth.
1: I uh, served seven years as a district superintendent, and uh, First Church Duluth was opening up, and uh, through the appointment process, then it was Bishop Sally Dick, who was our was our bishop in Minnesota, appointed me to First Church Duluth. It was a homecoming in in many ways because Duluth is the community that I had had grown up in, as I've said. Uh, my wife's mother and brother were still living there. My mom uh, was living just north of there. She had lived in Duluth, and actually, my mom moved outside of Duluth to the small community of Ely about six months before we moved back to Duluth. But anyway. Um, so, but, but it was it was a familiar place, and my congregation had people I had known uh, in my youth. My junior high principal was a member of my congregation. My uh, high school gym teacher was a member of the congregation. Some families that had come from the church I had grown up in that were now attending first church were part of that congregation and it was a, It was a good place to be. Um, Minnesota, because of the geography, so much centers in the Minneapolis St. Paul area, and sometimes the outstate communities feel a little bit estranged from, from what's happening there, um, at least at some level. And Duluth has a significant uh, sense of itself as a kind of a unique community. So I think having come from that community, uh, I had some credibility going back to the community in, in ministering there, and it was, a, it was a wonderful place to be in ministry. Enjoyed the, the people, enjoyed the ministry. Uh, Duluth is kind of a big, small town. It's a place where people stay for a lot of years, and it's a great place to be involved in
0: connecting the church with the community. It sounds like that's a big part of what you have been about throughout your ministry and your career, and somewhere along the line, you must have felt the call, or somehow it evolved. Where you were led to uh, led to the Episcopacy, how did that evolve out of First Church Duluth to where you're at now in Michigan?
1: Yeah, it, it probably first started when I was a district superintendent. I enjoyed that superintending ministry. I know for some people it's it's a difficult ministry, and it certainly has its challenges. But there was something about it that. Again, connected with some of uh, my gifts and graces. Persons with whom I was working um, encouraged me to think some about putting my name forward for, uh, for the episcopacy. I first uh, was a, a candidate for the Episcopacy in 2004. I lasted about five ballots. Again, was fairly young at the time, but I was Minnesota's endorsed candidate, and, and the Minnesota Conference has always been very supportive and, and gracious, encouraging me on. So I was a candidate again in 2008. That was the year that the North Central Jurisdiction elected a single bishop. That year it ended up being uh, Bishop Trimble. But he and I were the last two candidates, and that was, a, that was really quite a surprise. Um, nobody from Minnesota had ever been elected since the United Methodist Church formed in 1968. No one from Minnesota had been elected to the episcopacy. So we're, uh, you know, a bit of a smaller conference. You know, the endorsement by Minnesota doesn't come with a lot of a lot of votes. And so 2008, it was it was close, and I and I really felt like I wasn't done with that, that process yet. 2012, we didn't elect anybody, so I had had a long wait before I got to see what the result of that might be and felt like I needed to offer myself again for the Episcopacy in, in 2016 and was elected at that time. Going into 2016, that jurisdictional conference, I was sensing that it would be the last time. That if that election didn't happen, that door was was closing. So I just kind of phrased it that that I felt called
0: to participate in the process and then let develop. Process was a was a long process for you, and, and it must have had its share of its um, highs and lows. And yet, you ended up appointed in 2016 to the Michigan area. What did you What did you know about Michigan? How do you feel about entering ministry into Michigan? So I knew some something of about Michigan. Um, the, the
1: northwestern end of the Michigan area is only about 100 miles from Duluth, Minnesota. So the, the upper peninsula, the western end of the upper peninsula, which about which I think perhaps a lot of people who've been assigned, bishops who've been assigned to Michigan uh, haven't been as familiar with, um, was, was kind of familiar territory for me. We would get news from there and weather from there coming out of Duluth. That was sort of in the Duluth, wider Duluth, Minnesota coverage, news coverage area. So I knew something of Michigan. My, my dad actually, in 1968, the company he worked for in Duluth, I think he man, manufactured door interiors for automobiles. They were moving their operations to Michigan. So when I was in the sixth grade, uh, we came close to moving to Michigan. Of course, we're in the sixth grade; you don't want to move. So I was really glad, and at that time, it it, uh, it didn't work out. But I but I became somewhat more aware of 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 Michigan. To be honest, I was a little surprised when we got the assignment. I knew Michigan was in this process of bringing the two conferences together, and I really thought that. They might want a bishop who had served someplace else to help move that process forward. Having been assigned here, I've been delighted. I've been really pleased to, to be a part of helping the two conferences come together. And essentially, right now, we are now functioning as the Michigan Conference. There is still some legal work to do that will take place January 1st, 2019. But right now, we're, we're functioning as the Michigan Conference of the United Methodist Church.
0: Just what is the state of uh, United Methodism in in the state of Michigan, as you understand it right now, Bishop?
1: Well, I think there's, there are positive signs and things that we struggle with, I much like the United Methodist Church in other places in, in the United States. Um, you'd asked a little bit about, or, or sent me a question about, how, how I think uh, the United Methodist Church is doing in its mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And, and I would give it a, a mixed review on how we're accomplishing that, that mission, um, how we're making disciples so that people can be different the, and the world can, can be different. And I think that mixed review it would be true for, for Michigan a, as well. I have been really impressed with the quality of leaders in the United Methodist Church here in Michigan, both lay and clergy leaders. I think we've got uh, some great people uh, working in uh, the United Methodist Church, and I mean working in the broadest sense, not not simply employed, but but, uh, working at the mission of the the church here. And I think it's really important to celebrate what we're doing well. I think we live in a culture that that accentuates the the negative. Uh, We sort of conflate critical thinking with being critical uh, in terms of criticism. Um, I have sometimes uh, thought that we sort of live in a soup of cynicism so that uh, we, we minimize the good things that, that are being done. We're doing some wonderful work. And as I was trying to say before, I think it's important that we celebrate that. We tend to live in a culture where negativity is uh, strong, fairly dominant. Um, criticism is, uh, seems easy for us. Uh, There's a lot of cynicism, so I think it really is important that we note places where things are are going tremendously well. Our Michigan conference this year, we uh, did not invite a guest speaker. We had uh, transformational outreach ministry talks. We call them TOM talks. And we had folks share ministries from a a vast variety of contexts. engagement with schools uh youth mission work it it was focused on on the mission part the transformation of the world part um one of the panels i was particularly taken with was a panel on congregations involved with schools because it included people from the metro detroit area and from the upper peninsula small small towns their engagement with their schools took on different character but that they were both engaged in schools uh, together was, was really a, a joy to listen to. Um, we've got some congregations that are doing remarkably well in welcoming new people. Uh, this year we are beginning a congregation targeted um, at inviting French-speaking African immigrants to, uh, in, in Michigan into a new congregation. Uh, so there's some things that are going remarkably well. Which
0: one of these stories you mentioned several stories there but which one really touched you? Which was a real which one of these stories would you find be truly transformative both on an individual level perhaps but or a community or church level? Tell me about a transformation story.
1: So I think the conversations with the, the schools and how a congregation approached the school not to say what can we do for you but began with the question what what do you need? And how can can we help? The the feedback they get from, from parents about how their their children feel feel cared for by the wider community because a church has uh, provided boots and, and coats and, and hats for for them, how some of our congregations on the first day of school are inviting teachers to come over for, for coffee and donuts to let them know that, that they're appreciated in that work. And maybe part of the, the connection was the school touches me because my wife is a teacher okay. and and she knows how challenging teaching is. And she sees teaching as, as a part of her ministry in the world, caring, caring for kids. And when I see churches wanting to be helpful, helping those young people get a stronger start in the world, I think it, it's life-changing for them and and for the church as people begin to see that that following Jesus is a call to be engaged in the community
0: that is awesome and i know you've had a few issues that are pertinent to uh, going on in the world right now. I know that you, the uh, church, responded to the crisis in Flint, Michigan, in some regards. And yes. You also have an a immigrant population there that is involved with a lot of conversation now. Yes. how's the church been responding to those types of issues? The church has continues
1: to respond well, um, both in Michigan, and Michigan has been the recipient of the response of the church in, in lots of other places in, in the country. Um, we've received a lot of help for the Flint crisis and our response there, for example, from, from other places in the United Methodist Connection. We continue to do, to do work there. Uh, the, while the water quality seems to be improving, as you can imagine, residents there are still skeptical about how the government is handling some of that. And so the, continuing the distribution of water has been important. That's expanded to, to distribution of, of some food help and helping residents be more aware of a wider array of services that uh, they can access. So that that's been been going going well. Um, Flint is a community that struggles in in a lot of ways. It's a community that experienced a lot of disruption because of deindustrialization. But I think there's a sense in which there's a bit of hope returning.
0: Return of hope may be indicative of next point of our conversation I really would like to have with you, Bishop. And that has to do with uh, signs of hope or signs of direction in our whole United Methodist Church. Sure. And we are in a, oh, as everyone who's involved with United Methodism knows, we're in a bit of a defining moment for sure. our church as we move forward. And and I would just like to get your take on the whole issue of moving forward or a way forward, a way forward. As, as, uh, as it's been termed. I'd just like to get your take on the way forward. I know the Council of Bishops has met and the Commission on the Way Forward has met a number of times, and we're looking forward to a general conference in February 2019. But I'd like to get your views of a way forward and how that's impacting the church as a whole and perhaps even Michigan in particular.
1: Well, I would begin by saying I'm deeply grateful for the thirty two people who were willing to serve on the commission on a way forward. These are United Methodists from across the world who came to work on that commission from uh, from some very different, very very different perspectives. They gave a lot of their time and energy, uh, prayer. They put the, themselves, their, their, they, they really kind of let their souls out from, from what I've heard about that, that work. It was a deeply prayerful, deeply soulful work. And I hope that as material comes from the commission, I hope people remember that because it comes out of that work, um, even though some features of the legislative proposals may have some similarity to things we've thought of before, um, Nothing has ever come out of this kind of work before. And I'm concerned that, that people might be too dismissive too quickly of, of um, material they see. So I'm really hoping people when the commission's report uh, comes from the Council of Bishops and is publicly released, which is coming quite quickly, that, that people will read the material carefully uh, and reflect on it thoughtfully and, thoughtfully and prayerfully. Um, because I think if they do that, they'll see that what's here is not simply recycled ideas from the past. Uh, for example, one, the one church model, I hear some people dismissing it rather quickly as just a regurgitated local option. Um, and there are more elements to it than that, as as I understand it. And I'm still waiting to read the entire report myself. But But there are things that we've never seen before there. Um, So I hope people will read it carefully and prayerfully. The traditionalist model isn't simply a a continuation of the status quo, for example. While it retains the current language of our Book of Discipline, um, it will offer some more stringent enforcement of the Book of Discipline as well as perhaps some ways out for pastors and congregations and maybe even conferences. So again, I'm I'm encouraging people to to read all the material prayerfully and, and carefully. In Michigan, I have traveled around. I had um, about eight sessions last uh, fall and winter to talk about uh, the Commission on the Way Forward and the issues that face us as a denomination. I've been very pleased with the quality of those conversations people have been uh, kind and civil even when they have passionately expressed their points of view and I'm really hoping that that quality of conversation that I've experienced here in Michigan uh, can continue both here and throughout the church. I have another series of uh, 10 conversations now that will more specifically talk about the report of the commission. Um, but those will be coming up this this fall and winter
0: you've mentioned a couple of times about being being careful about being too dismissive of a of a view one way or another and I know from your ethics background and from what I understand from your approaches that you want to be us to be careful about that to to have when we have an opinion to have it carefully thought out to consider our opinions and to yes. research and do things like this and not to be dismissive, just say, well, everybody has their own opinions. So we all need to go our own way. Hey, thank you for reading my blog. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, try to do some research on my end as well, Thank you. but I would just like you to, if you will, I'd like you to unpack this approach that you have, this philosophical or ethical approach to the matter at hand of the way forward. Uh, how can we be understanding of other points of view and consider our own point of view and then somehow come out the other side. And of course we have to state that the, you know, the polarizing issue of all this uh, is human sexuality and how can we deal with those issues forthrightly, understand whatever side we're on, carefully consider it, try to understand the other side and somehow or another come out the other side. That's, I believe is the issue at hand. How are we going to come out the other side to something that it still can be effective in doing what we talked about previously, actually fulfilling our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. So I know I gave you a mouthful there, but could you just speak to that a little bit?
1: Well, I'll try to try to unpack that a, a little bit, try to take it section by, by section. I do hope that we can be uh, very thoughtful in how we have our, our conversations. Um Obviously, when we have differences of opinion, we've arrived at those from some different um, thought processes, and I hope we can be respectful at hearing how people have arrived at, at where they've arrived at and be willing to listen to questions, respond uh, respond with some thoughtfulness. I believe firmly that we have decisions to make, but how we make our decisions is nearly as important as the decision we finally will make. You know, will we be able to treat one another with a, a measure of uh, kindness and humility and patience and, and gentleness? I'm pulling some some words out of the first part of Ephesians 4 um, where it talks about us uh, treating one another in, in that way. Because the church, the wider church will be watching us, the, the world will be, will be watching us and if uh regardless of where we finally end up, if there's some sense of moving forward together or some sense of of separating, how that happens is really important um, and I truly believe that you know the question before us is the question of, around human sexuality, and it's certainly rooted in differing readings of of the scriptures. I don't think it's rooted in the question of whether the Bible is authoritative uh, or not. I've heard that framing. I think there's a broad agreement that the Bible is authoritative uh, for us, Uh, but we've bring some differing scholarly research to how we've read the the passages about human sexuality um, and where we think there might be some folks are, you know, have come to the conclusion that uh, that it's very clear. The scriptures are very clear, and and um, same-sex behavior is prohibited, and there's really no question about that. Others want to say, if you look at the context, perhaps there's at least some measure for reasonable doubt that what what Paul was referring to is the same thing that we talk about today when we talk about. Uh, same-gendered couples in in long-term loving, committed relationships. Um, I think that's a conversation worth continuing to have. Uh, The question in some ways for us is whether we we want to continue to grapple with that together and uh, whether grappling with that together is one way in which we enhance the ministry of the church or whether we think trying to stay together and continue to have those conversations is more getting in the way of our ministry. And I think sometimes it does both. I think there are times when it, it it certainly gets in the way of some of our ministry. And there are times when I think our ability to hang together and wrestle with things together is in itself a, a witness to the transforming power of God's love in Jesus Christ. It brings different people together, uh, people who might
0: not joyously join in the same, same cause. And how we handle this crisis also speaks to how we will function as a church beyond February of twenty nineteen and I agree. I've just kind of like your just your just your thoughts on how the church may look a year or two from now.
1: You know I don't have a crystal ball. I can see a few different possibilities. I, I could see us finding a way I, I've used the metaphor of of space for and space between staying together in a church that offers a, some more space for LGBTQ persons. Um, in the life of the church, and yet also at the same time offers more space between people who have some differing views on the inclusion of LGBTQ persons. I could see that that's a possibility. Um, but I could also see uh, folks deciding that what's most important right now for them is that space between that that we really need to go in a couple of different, uh, different directions. Um, I think that we'll have some messiness to it. Um, I think regardless of decisions of general conference, there will be some people who decide that this United Methodist project um, is, is really no longer worth some of the energy that, that it takes. So there, there's a sense in which there will be some heartbreak along, along the way here.
0: Well, I'm hopeful that um, perhaps even out of the chaos, out of the issues at hand, that they're, can be some opportunities for some real impact and some real ministry to take place. And we I don't think dr- so too. You know, I hope we just don't, you've used the term, um, super cynicism. I just hope we don't drown in that and how we can move forward with some encouragement and some possibilities for something new. It'll, it's going to look, it's going to be, it's going to be something new and different. It is gonna That's be almost a given Yes, uh, for given the situation. And, but I just ask you one or two more questions just to finish this up in terms of, What are some real signs of hope then for our church moving forward in the midst of this crisis that we have?
1: I have seen people while they're engaging in issues around church unity, also stay committed to the ministry of the church of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. They're they're not becoming overwhelmed with what's happening to us denominationally. And I I continue to encourage that. Uh, The world The hurts of the world cannot wait for us to kind of figure out what we're going to do as a denomination for us to minister to those needs of the world. God calls us in Jesus Christ to minister to the needs of the world right now, um, regardless of some of the denominational uncertainty. And when I see people doing that, that to me is is one sign of hope. I have seen people and heard from people who are expressing a certain openness to talking about um, their differences in new ways that that is hopeful to me. Um, You know, I'm always aware that whenever I go to an event and have an event that's going to talk about human sexuality and the unity of the church, the people who come self-select. It's not necessarily a representative sample of people – Michigan United Methodists in that area of the state. But again, I've been really impressed by people's willingness to, to come together, to engage in some, some challenging conversation. And that's a, that's a sign of hope. Because I think one of the gifts the church could give our wider society is, is modeling how people who have some strongly held viewpoints that are different uh, are willing to, to listen to one another, to find places where they can engage in shared ministry together, um, as a society, we're not finding a lot of places where that happens, and I think the church could witness powerfully to, to the Spirit uh, by engaging our being, being that kind of community, that kind of body together.
0: So perhaps a sign, a sign of hope for our church, could also be an investment or a sign of hope for. For the world. After all, the world is our parish, right? The world is our parish. Well, Bishop, I appreciate you being with me. I just like to ask one more thing. One more thing. When you are not uh, in, actively involved with uh, ministry or whatever, what is it something you like to do? A hobby or an event, or what's something you like to do just for you or your family?
1: So, uh, this past uh, weekend, I preached in uh, Traverse City and northwest uh, part of, of Michigan, and went up a day early, and my wife and I spent time at the uh, Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore. Just enjoyed getting out, spending time together, walking around in the sand dunes and, and appreciating appreciating the beauty of nature. So I enjoyed that. Love to read, love to listen to music, uh, follow baseball pretty avidly. I, I don't have a, a kind of a consuming hobby, um, Probably reading might, might be it in some ways, but I but, uh, but I, I, enjoy, I enjoy learning. I enjoy just opening my mind to the wonder and uh, beauty and uh, complexity of God's good world.
0: And out of learning comes growth. And we've grown a lot from our conversation with you today, Bishop. We really appreciate it. If people want to be in contact with you, is that okay, Bishop? If the people go to your website, for instance, and sure. have some interaction with you? And we'll certainly put that in our show notes, uh, your connection there. That's uh, michiganumc.org. Is that yes. correct? Okay, very good. Well, Bishop, we really appreciate you being our guest today in the United Methodist People podcast, where it is certainly our mission to strengthen the connection through conversation and commentary that impacts the people called United Methodist. Many, many, many thanks to Bishop David Allen Bard of the Michigan area of the United Methodist Church. Did you hear his passion for the church, my friend? Did you hear how he loves Jesus and how he loves the church, and is just passionate about how the church, the expression of the church, is being lived out, and how we just really need to use our every aspect of us—you know, reuse reason and experience and and the whole quadrilateral uh, aspects of of the church and biblical knowledge and all these things, and experience in order to have the best expression of the church. And just to touch on a couple of things that I think Bishop Bard lifted up that I would really like to see us all as United Methodist clergy and lay people and people who love Christ through the United Methodist Church can pay attention to. One of those was the idea of civility and kindness in our conversations. We have a lot of things going on right now, and we need to have a sensibility of how we do things does matter. And that part of that is really being sensitive into having well-thought-out arguments. He talked about uh, when we have have great and powerful decisions to make, but how we make those decisions, that does matter. And he referenced Ephesians 4 about kindness and gentleness and self-control and so on. And he also talked about how the whole world's going to be watching us. Certainly the whole United Methodist Church is going to be watching us, we all know that. But you know what? The people in the communities we serve are going to be watching us as well. And that's what really matters as we reach out into our communities. And uh, a part of that process then is not to go off, you know, kind of uh, half-cocked on things, but to have well-thought-out opinions and arguments in order to grapple with these difficult questions and to do it together. And he uh, talks about some signs of, of, of uh, hope in our church of a willingness to engage in challenging conversations. And that's a, a gift that we can give and we can model how the church can be a representative in the world and does some good news there. I really enjoyed my conversation with Bishop Bard. I would encourage you to make a connection. He's got a great blog, by the way, if you go to... Michigan area the Michigan uh, annual Conference Michigan area website, and really some fascinating stuff in Bishop Barrd's blog. I would invite you to to check that out. We'll put connections in our show notes to all those types of things. If you do like what you hear on the United Methodist People podcast, love to hear from you. The lifeblood of this podcast is you is you those people who love the United Methodist Church and want to strengthen the connection that's our mission. It's really simple. The mission of this podcast is strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church as a means to enable us to be more effective in our stated mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We do that through conversation and commentary. And so your feedback is important. So among the things you can do is subscribe to our newsletter, or updates. You can go to our website, which is unitedmethodistpodcast.com, and there's a sign-up uh, place there where you can get our United Methodist uh, People podcast updates, and uh, as well as you'll get a free gift, which is called the the Methodist Way, a multimedia presentation. I think you'll enjoy, it, and you can use it in your ministry. You can also be helpful to us by uh, spreading the word. Through your network, through your Facebook pages, through your people that you know, who you think the United Methodist People podcast may be helpful to. Among the ways you can do that, oh, by the way, is go to iTunes. In iTunes, you can subscribe to the podcast. You just put in the search field, United Methodist People podcast, and we'll pop up there. And uh, you subscribe to the podcast. There's a little button that says subscribe. You do that. That helps us get the word out to others. And then rate the podcast. A five-star rating would be beautiful, and we would love it, and we would appreciate it. But be honest and forthright with us. And then also leave a review, just a line or two, and will be a, a review for us. So that's some, something that you can do. If you'd like to be supportive, in uh, a little further way, a little deeper way to the United Methodist People podcast, so you can be a patron of the podcast. There is certain expenses involved with putting on a podcast of this nature for hosting and for the website and things like that. And then we also have a, a mission that we support. We are supportive and and tithing towards the United Methodist mission called Mission Guatemala which is a United Methodist-based mission in the rural areas of Guatemala. But just go to our website, unitedmethodistpodcast.com, and and click on the area where it says become a patron. We love what we do here, we love our church. I love our church. My name is Reverend Brad Miller, Uh, Reverend Dr. Brad Miller. I I went to United Methodist College, and I went to United Methodist Seminary, and I wrote my doctoral thesis about transformational leadership in the United Methodist Church. And I, like you, am very, very interested and a little bit anxious, but also hopeful that God is going to do something great in our church moving forward. As we come to this kind of crucible of time, as we move towards February 2019, something interesting is going to happen, that is for sure. And I want to be a part of it. Here's what I know is that God can do a great work through our church when we have people step up who are committed to strengthening the connection because we have a great mission to follow. You know what it's all about. You know that we are followers of Jesus Christ first, but we also follow in the Wesleyan way. The Wesleyan way of John Wesley, who, among other things said, to do all the good you can to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. And so that's our theme here on the United Methodist People podcast. Until next time, there's Reverend Dr. Brad Miller, wishing you God's blessings in your life and continue to do all the
2: good you can. Thanks so much for listening to the United Methodist People Podcast with Rev. Dr. Brad Miller. You can continue the conversation and commentary about strengthening the connection in the United Methodist Church to accomplish our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Visit the United Methodist People Podcast on the web at unitedmethodistpodcast.com and connect at facebook.com slash united methodist podcast and always do all the good you can.